Welcome everyone to another episode of the No Ordinary Cloth podcast, where we stitch together a tapestry of fashion and textile innovations, one episode at a time. This is your host, Millie Tharakin, and hope you're all off to a wonderful start this new year. I'm particularly thrilled about our guest today, Mika Satomi. She is someone I greatly admire and have known for over 12 years now. She's many things, but for the sake of this introduction, I would say she's an artist, a researcher, a maker, and a wonderful teacher. If you have ever attended a workshop or class run by her, you will know what I mean. She has the gift of teaching and a deep desire to share knowledge freely and openly. As an artist, she is someone who is not defined or contained by a particular medium. She lets her messenger idea guide the materials and techniques that she chooses. And very often, these are a combination of techniques that are both old and new, digital, analog and manual techniques that she blends together powerfully to tell a story. I've never known anyone else who has the agility to experiment, learn and so seamlessly bring together a range of skills, be it weaving, printing, programming, knitting, electronics, sewing, dyeing and so much more. If she wants to make something, she will figure it out. And you'll hear a lot more about that in this podcast. She is a brilliant mind and a beautiful person. So I can't wait to share this episode with you. Mika is closely associated with the e-textiles or electronic textile community. And she is a pioneer in the space. But in our conversation today, we are talking about a completely analog project where she learned and used Japanese katazome resist technique with indigo dyeing to create her latest project reflecting on the very current and important topic of migration. Before we dive in, I had a little request. I've attached a link to a short two-minute survey in the show notes. I would love to hear from you, know what topics you're interested in and what you learn and enjoy about this podcast. I would deeply appreciate it if you could take time out to share your thoughts and help me shape this podcast for 2024. Now, without further ado, let's dive right in to hear what Mika has to share. Mika Satomi, thank you so much for joining us today. I, I'm so excited to interview you. One, because you do such incredible breadth of work in textiles, but two, because you're such a dear friend and there's nothing better than chatting with a dear friend and just learning. So welcome to the No Ordinary Cloth podcast and we are going to dive into a few questions and get to know you about yourself and your work today. I know you love food and you're fabulous at cooking. What are some of your favorite food while growing up? I do remember as a child, I didn't particularly like traditional food or particularly fish and vegetables. But as I was growing up, I did enjoy very much eating fish and seafood and also like particular types of vegetables. And I still do enjoy them very much. And you love cooking them as well, don't you? Yes, I do. I do. And it's a little bit sad living in Europe. I can't really find the ingredients that I would need to cook Japanese. So I tend to do some European version of Japanese cooking. And while you were growing up, what did you dream of becoming? I didn't really have that sort of a big wish or a big role model or so. I think more or less... What I do now just came by like following what was 
just at the moment available or what happened then or what someone else said, why don't you do this? Or just by chance doing something. And I didn't think, when I was young, I didn't think that I would be doing what I do now. For your undergrad, you did graphic design and illustration, is that right? Exactly. So that was, I wanted to go to art school and that was the only option I had because my my father wasn't a big fan of the idea of me studying fine art. And that was a middle ground that I could convince him. <laughs> <laughs> Good compromise. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and then you did your master's as well, is that right, in Japan? I did work in between. So I did graduate and then eventually I, I worked in design companies. Then I learned about art and technology. It's a, it was a kind of new study field back then. And I get to know a professor who was teaching this in this uh, new school that was only for master's study for technology and art. And I, I applied for the school. And that was the start of me getting into doing technology within the art field. Let's get into the project itself that you're working on right now. You did a collaboration on an artistic project called Indigo Hyphy. And it is such a beautiful project, Mika. I I was just going through the gallery. Such beautiful fabrics, textiles that you made there. And there's so many layers of meaning and thinking that's gone behind it. Could you tell us a bit about this project? Just from the beginning, what is it about? And what was your creative process? Mm -hmm. So the background of the whole thing is that I usually work with electronics and textiles or e-textiles, which involves a lot of technology and technology building, e-textile building, programming, and so on and so on. And I got a bit sick of it, Mm. to be honest. Mm. And I wanted to do something that is analog, that doesn't concern, does it work? No. (laughs) Yes, the big question. (laughs) Exactly. Will it work? Does it work? So I wanted to make something away from it. I wanted to do something that is textile and textile without E part of it. And then I got a chance to do a project with Zeug Fabalai in Upper Austria. And Zeug Fabalai is open source indigo dye workshop that is like a community based. So mm. they are not a commercial studio, okay. but it's a kind of fab lab of the fabric. Yeah. And I, it's run by many people, but one of the core member is Janina Wegscheider, who is a long-term friend of mine. And recently there was a, a call and there was a chance to work with them in artistic project. So I applied for it. And then when we were applying or like when we were planning to do the project, I, my big wish was I don't want to do anything with electronics. I want to do just textile thing. And I want to explore what this technique that they have been using, which is indigo dye with uh, resist print, can do in artistic uh, projects. So this was my kind of setting and starting point. And the project was a commission for Festival de Regionen, which is a kind of regional artistic festival. And the topic for this year was train stations or train. Yeah. So then like from there, I started to think about, okay, so what does it mean in a bigger sense, not just a train, but this kind of like people moving Mm. and moving around. And one of the things that inspired me was this recent discussions about people from other places coming in and then how this kind of discussion or like mood and atmosphere is built up. Not everyone, 
important, I would say, but in some regions and among some people about kind of resistance to the people who are coming in. And then part of it is this kind of changing your culture or how do you keep the tradition? Right. And I felt a need to think about it. And especially indigo dyeing technique is often considered as a traditional technique. I wanted to think about it. So what is this concept of traditional culture, traditional technique? Yeah. How do I understand it? And my understanding for this was that techniques of any kind of makings is always moving. Absolutely. It's not traditional per se. If you, if you look at indigo dyeing, this moved around. No one can claim this is yeah. mine. Like, <laughs> indigo dyeing started in, I guess, Egypt or in South America. I, I actually don't even know where is the first one that you can say it's the first one. But it happened in the different parts of the world. And then, of course, like there is a places that can actually that indigo plants can grow. And then there are places where indigo plants does not grow, but then they probably imported or got this indigo plant and then further developed some technique. But then also these techniques moved around. So some people had a really good idea of how you can print it in a certain way or how you can dye it in a certain way or how you can make patterns in a certain way. And then this kind of crossbreed as the people brought this fabric to different parts or maybe even the actual people who knew the technique moved to somewhere, right? And then, then this technique makes a hybrid with the other technique that was more practiced in the region and so on and so on. So what we see... And what we call as traditional technique and traditional culture today, or tra traditional way of making, traditional fabric, it's a mix of everything and it has been moving. It, and it, I think it should Absolutely. move Absolutely, yeah. So I felt like almost doing these things is also a manifestation of accepting and celebrating this element of the people and mixing of the culture. So that was my starting point. And what I did in the project was I purposely brought in the the indigo dye or indigo resist printing technique from Japan called katazome and doing it in Austria where they don't do katazome but with the materials and tools that is available there and it was also inspired by the the practice of Zeug Faberei because the traditionally used resist material in that region is it's not I don't say sustainable but it's not the best material that you can put in the normal drain water. If you have the, the system to filter the water, it's not a problem, but it has a copper inside. And therefore, if you don't have these systems, you don't want to put it. And therefore, the, they didn't want to use this system, this, this resist uh, material system that is usually used in the region. But instead, uh, they looked for another material that would not contain something that would pollute the, the drain water. One of the things they looked in was the Japanese techniques, but it's not the technique itself, but this material that they used to cover the white part of the dye. Mm. So this mm -hmm. resist print dye. So they adapted the recipe quite a bit to fit to their, their indigo bath and then also temperature where you're printing and also the materials that is available here. Because one of the main material of this this resist is uh, rice bran and the rice bran is a waste material in japan and it's everywhere because rice is one of the main crop but here you don't find it <laughs> mm. so they had to look for the ways to to either source it or to find a kind of alternative material for it they ended up like they tried different things and it actually didn't work 
So they ended up looking for one that is in Europe. It's a rice bran, but for host food. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah it's very interesting. <laughs> so, <laughs> so they already figured that part out. So when I was thinking of, okay, I would really like to bring in another technique or another practice of indigo dyeing here, I thought, ah, okay, then I also bring not only this resist material, but actually printing material printing technique they use in Japan with this kind of register. So that's what I did. The main part of the project was to develop the whole system of from making register to the printing with every, the material that is available there and, and then also technique that is easy to access using also kind of DIY techniques and DIY materials that is available there and open source document everything. So that was one part of the project. The other part of the project is then I produced a lot of fabric using this technique and I gave it away. So I wanted people to, I don't know, do something with them. <laughs> so I wanted to come on to that actually, because just for the, the listeners to understand, can you describe these fabrics? In this project, I've produced maybe like 250 pieces of indigo dyed fabric. Wow. Yeah, it was really a lot. And each of them were printed with this katazome. And the motif was something that I've, I found or like my memories of living in the region. So I used to live in the region of Upper Austria. And oftentimes I spent time helping my friend doing work in the farm or in the garden, making vegetables. And I spent many times walking in the woods looking for mushrooms. So those were kind of my first good memories of the region. And I thought like, yeah, why not trying to make a pattern with these? So I made a lot of katazome patterns of different vegetables that you find in the region or commonly grown in the region, lots of mushroom patterns that you find in the region. And I also made a few patterns of uh, snails with house and without houses. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because there are really a lot of those in that region. And so these 200 plus 250 fabrics were printed with these uh, katazome patterns, so these vegetables and mushroom patterns. All of them are different because these patterns were just like one vegetables, like one motif. And we printed few of them together. So all the layers were every time different. Therefore, the, none of the fabric was the exact copy. So these 200 something fabrics were then hung at the train stations. We used four different stations along the same Somarau uh, train line. Oh, okay, right. And during the festival, so the idea was that you could take a train and then you see these indigo fabrics hanging in each of these train stations. So you see them kind of almost waving or waiting on the train stations. And you as an audience were invited to pick the fabric that you like and take it home. Okay. So you could take one or take two if you like. And, and then there was an instruction. You can take it home, but when you take it home, please post one photos of the fabric in your space or in your region or like in where you would use it or landmark in that region. So you should stay at anonymous. I don't want your identity, but I wanted to see what you would what you would do with them or where you take these indigo hyphies. These photos were then uploaded to the map so you could see how these fabric 
started to spread from these regions of the festival to other parts of Austria or in Europe or in the world. So that was the project. Amazing. And I checked that map. Mm-hmm. It was incredible to see. Went out to Sweden, parts of Germany, Hungary, I think as well. So mm-hmm. it's just lovely to see that map. I felt like the textiles, you know, sort of migrated to all these places. And it's funny because when you explained your thinking behind where this project started, that's exactly what you were sort of exploring as well, of people migrating and moving around and finding new homes. And although I didn't quite realize that, you know, I was thinking it's just wonderful to see these textiles find new homes. And and yeah, that blue dot on the map is quite powerful, actually. What were you sort of expectations from that map? What were you hoping to see? Yeah, I really wanted to say literally what you said. Like I wanted to see these dots spreading and these. So indigo hyphae, by the way, the hyphae is as kind of like a singular, not mushrooms, but, you know, this fiber of the mushrooms. So when you see under the ground, there is not the mushroom, but this, you know, this the body of the mushroom spreading. So mycelium is the body, right? And then a hyphae is the hair or like this hand of the mushroom that is oh, growing. That, that okay. Is. So these are the hyphae of the indigo. And they were waiting in the train stations and then they are now migrating. Like the mushrooms, you know, walk through the woods, walk through the mountains. It moves from one place to the other. So that was my image of this project. The map is a, a bit of like my wish of visualizing or like, an, it's not even visualizing because I have no control over it. When people post it, then you see the dot. Did people take most of the fabric? So do you still have some with you? It was quite quickly gone. Oh, I can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> they were so beautiful, Mika. Of course, everyone was going to, you know, I can imagine as you come into a train station and these gorgeous indigo fabrics just sort of dancing in the wind and uh, you're invited to just take one. Just that act of taking one of that and taking it away with you is very powerful. Yeah, it, it was interesting because as I was making, I wasn't sure if people want to have them. No, it could ended up that, okay, I end up with like huge amount of fabric. I don't know what to do with. <laughs> so I really wasn't sure. I mean, indigo dyeing is really a time consuming process. So the ones that I made, and by the way, so you could take a piece and the one piece is maybe like 50 centimeter by 100 or something like that. It was quite a big piece. And for each process, I could do... I think 16 pieces at a time. It takes eight times of dyeing, which of, of dipping. Wow. And that means four hours of process. So every day I did, I don't know how many hours, more than eight. I did two cycles per day. That means I could make 32 per day. And you made more than 250. <laughs> Mika, I mean, this is something I've noticed in many of our projects, your, your ability to just persevere (laughs) and repeat a process. I think that's something I I think you really enjoy is to repeat and repeat and repeat until it just becomes a part of you. It's a skill that you've grown into in that process. Is that right? You're right. I do really enjoy this kind of repetitive works. Yeah. But, but I think I mean, that's, that's the hand, like hand works and craft works, no? Absolutely. You do repeat and the physicality of it, the physical work of it is really rewarding. 
at the same time. It's hard, but it's rewarding. And this was exactly that. I was not soldering. I was not programming, but I was dying. It was printing and dying, which is very physical. And then you spend a whole day standing physical work and then you get this fabric, yep. 32 of it. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, but, but as I was making these, and then this is like quite, quite physical work, and I wasn't sure would we want to have these things. So when I started like the first day of the festival and when people went crazy taking all these things, I was surprised. And then I thought, oh, I should have maybe thought about it. So they just don't run out of it in on the first day. But on the other hand, I was really happy that people actually wanted to take them. Yeah, lovely. I think one of the things, I mean, I've known you for over 10 years now, Mika. Mm-hmm. I just realized that. Just, and one thing I've greatly admired about you is your ability to learn new skills, you know, all sorts of skills, whether it's to do with textile skills like crochet, weaving, now dyeing, printing, or hardware skills, or coding skills, whatever it may be. You're sort of able to quite fluidly move between different tools and techniques. You make it look really easy, but I know it's not because you spend hours like this working on something again and again and again and really honing it in. Yeah. And you have this incredible ability to take tools and techniques and methods and processes from different places and and creating a version of your own with all of that. Could you share a bit about the skills that you learned through this project and what techniques had to be brought together to make this project happen? Maybe I start answering your first part of the comment about learning techniques and skills. I always feel like, or when I do that, I Think of this one scene from Matrix. You know the Matrix? The yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe not everyone nowadays have seen it. Yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> I'm old enough to born. know about it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So in this film, there is this one scene that one of the characters needs to fly in a helicopter in the, this virtual world. And then she calls in to the operator and say, operator, helicopter, da, 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 da. And then the operator just puts the floppy disk. And then, then instantly she knows how to fly a helicopter. Right. And I yeah. always feel a bit like that, except it's not the floppy disk and it's not instant that I can learn. I wish I could do that, but I feel like I'm just kind of inserting, ah, I need this. And I, I'm kind of putting myself to insert this skill set floppy disk on me. But on the other hand, I feel like, therefore, my skills are very shallow. Like I'm just doing this project or I want to do this and then I need this part of how to do it. So I don't go to the flying school and I don't learn all this thing about how to fly a helicopter, but I just get this floppy disk, just part that I need. And sometimes I feel therefore I'm missing things. I really admire the people who have actually gone through and practiced years to do that skill that I'm kind of mimicking in a very deep and good way. I have to say that, no, thank you for <laughs> saying good thing about me just grabbing these <laughs> one after another different things, but I do enjoy learning these things and I do enjoy trying different skills, but I sometimes do feel lack of depth in these things I do in terms of like skills and yeah, just dexterity of hand, for example, mm, and so on. Mm. And this was also a little bit of the feeling I had with this project. So for this project, I needed to learn how to do all this indigo dye related techniques and knowledge. I mean, indigo dyeing is really super deep craft. 
knowledge and a big body of knowledge that you need. And I just really did the floppy disk way. And and I must say, and I really thank for Yanina from Toik Favalai because she has been doing this for years. So she really supported me and like invited me to transfer her knowledge to me without hesitation. So all this like understandings of how indigo is behaving. So when you are dyeing the fabric, the bath is a kind of chemical reaction and it's a living thing. So it may work one day and it may not work the other day. So you have to always read the bath, the, the indigo bath water to see what they need. Do they need more of chemical that you put it to a higher pH or it needs more air circulation or it doesn't want the air circulation. It's too cold, it's too warm, all these things. And then you can do something the day before so that it works in the next day because these chemical reactions takes time. So you need to understand how to read the bath and this is something you can't just learn overnight. So this is a result of experience. So it was really interesting to be exposed to that. I, I can't read the bath, but I learned what they are doing and what they are reading and what's the kind of place to look, look at. And I, I had a glance of it. And this was really interesting. And all these techniques around uh, printing, I had to learn it. It's different from a screen, silk screen printing. Again, like you just try it, you continue doing it, and then you just start to get better at it. Yeah, those are the, like two skills I can say that it was really new and it was really interesting to learn. The, this uh, motif patterns that I had, these were kind of my experiments. And normally the katazomes, the real katazomes in Japan, this is hand cut and itself is a long process and this requires a lot of skills. But I wanted to do this part in more this kind of modern, not modern way, but kind of this plus technology way. So I used the CNC uh, plotter, so a computerized plotter. So I had this image that I drew and then this was converted into uh, digital data and then I cut everything with the machine. But then still we had to figure out the lot of how do you turn this cut material into a stencil. It's a stencil with a screen on it. I didn't yeah. know that. And it's a really interesting technique because in Japan, it is traditional technique that is practiced by like craftsmen for this very high art. But also there's a lot of DIY versions of it because silk screen, you can't really do at home or like, you know, you need a lot of equipment to do it at home. But this technique, if you just need a cotton knife. So a lot of people do it as also as DIY technique, the easier versions one. So I really like this kind of variety from this high craft to DIY home technique. And I wanted to kind of make in between of those. Yeah, so this was not the skill I learned, but kind of experiments and explorations I made. Yeah, I think it's interesting that you feel like you're always, you know, that floppy disk version of a, of a technique <laughs> or a, a skill. But, you know, I think there's so much value and power in both, like going really deep as these high craftsmen do in regions around the world. There's thousands and thousands of hours being an indigo dyer or a weaver or whatever it is. And it reminds me of, of a story of when I went to this craft village in India to uh, someone who does indigo dyeing and he had been doing it since he was like 10 years old or something and he was in his 60s when I met him 
And we were asking him, you know, like you said, that bath, it's like a little living creature by itself. And you really have to look after it and learn it and read the bath. And we used to ask him, like, how do you know what kind of blue you're getting? And how do you control all that? And he said he used to taste the bath, taste a little bit. And then he knew what needed to be done to that bath to get what he wanted it to. And I think that is something you can only gain over years and years and hours and hours and hours of experience. And there's so much value in that. But at the same time, there is so much value in what you do is to understand the concept of what is being done and to translate that and then bring it together with all of these other techniques like CNC cutting, making it making it much more accessible to sort of a, a different group of people to play with and experiment with. And in that process, that craft is evolving into another form. You know, earlier you talked about how it's so important that we realize traditional wasn't a static thing, whether it's indigo, whether it's food, whether it's Mm -hmm. a technique, it keeps evolving. And that's how new things have developed in the world. And we might recognize something as, oh, that's a traditional Indian weave or technique, but it's sort of traveled from somewhere else. And there was so much exchange of knowledge And I think that's the richest thing that we as humans have is knowledge that we exchange and mix to make new knowledge. And I think you do that so, so fluidly and so aesthetically in transitioning between all these different techniques and creating like a new craft by itself. That's how I see your work. (laughs) Talking about craftsmen, I know as part of this project, you were also reading the book, The Unknown Craftsman one of my Mm -hmm. favorite books as well. And you mentioned that you were interested in the idea of the nameless craftsman that is mentioned in that book as a concept. Could you expand a bit more about this thinking and how this idea filtered into the project and how this book inspired the project? Yes, actually, I brought in this book or I thought of this book exactly because you mentioned it many, many years ago. Really? (laughs) And when I started to do this project, I... I was a bit stuck with the question of what do I print? And then I was exploring, okay, what kind of pattern can I do? What motif to take? Should it be something meaningful? And then I started to read this book. And then there, the writer talks about the pattern exactly of the craft objects. And he talks about, yeah, the pattern is something, something of every day. And by just people practicing and just applying this motif and patterns again and again these shapes become so not perfect but kind of like you know these edges that you don't need goes away by just being practiced many times it gets much tighter and the motifs they pick is something from the everyday you see a bamboo bamboos are everywhere and then and then these bamboos make it to the motif for the dish that you use for every day. So yeah. it's being used as an everyday object. It's not something that you put on the wall and just look at it, but it's something that you use. And then therefore you take something from what you find beautiful from your everyday surrounding. And the other thing he talks about is no bamboo looks like the bamboo pattern that you see on the dishes. <laughs> but still, you do recognize this is a bamboo. So this becomes kind of this meta language or like, you know, this meta form of something that you know every day that kind of decorates or that has a little charm to your everyday life. That's like how I understood what he talks about, the pattern. And that affected me a lot to decide the pattern being vegetables and mushrooms. 
that was kind of my response to that reading that book and that chapter. Yeah, so that was one of the inspiration I got from the book. And, and then also that kind of comes to this topic of namelessness. So it wasn't these patterns and these motifs are not about my personal thinking or my personality manifesting to this particular shape or aesthetic. And then I, I find it really interesting as a concept to actually stay nameless. So it wasn't about me. It was about practice and doing and what the others think about or what the others then do something. So these fabrics I gave, probably people don't remember who it was, but the fabric stays with them. That's something I wanted. So it wasn't me. And then some people ask if I want to sign this fabric. And exactly, I didn't want it to sign this fabric. It didn't occur to me that, oh, I should do something to sign or mark the fabric as mine. Oh, that's beautiful, Mika. I mean, it's so countercultural. And I think that also just frees you in a way, isn't it, to create yeah. without that <laughs> pressure of like, oh, this is, I love how you said a manifestation of your personality <laughs> into a, an artwork is just so much pressure. Whereas this just frees you to just create and enjoy that process of making and sending it out into the world. Yeah, I mean, or like, you know, you can't use always dishes with all the names. Everything has a names of this and that, no? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so now I'd love to sort of move on from this project and learn a little more about you, Mika. So you mentioned you started off in Japan. At some point along the way, you moved to Austria. So what brought you to Austria then? Okay. So this was also by like, my supervisor is an Austrian person and she moved to Austria to become a full professor. And I was a bit desperate that she just, sh she was gone. But then she established an uh, exchange student program between her school in Austria and our school in Japan. And I was the first exchange student. Yeah. So that was my, my way into Austria or to Europe. Okay. Which school was this in Austria? This is Linz Art University. Yeah, this is also a technology art. So Linz is a medium-sized city in Austria. And they are host of Ars Electronica Festival, which is a kind of quite known festival for art and technology. And therefore, they have a lot of background or interest in technology and art. And the university just started this new program called Interface Culture back then. And that's where I studied. And it, interesting thing is they didn't say it's technology art only, but they call it as an interface culture. So this was kind of more broader sense to understand what you can do with technology in artistic design context. And that was actually, again, my last. So before that, I had nothing to do with text textiles. I didn't particularly have interest in textile either. But in at uh, interface culture, there was one course called... Fashion and Technology by Sabine Simon. And there she brought a bunch of examples and materials of e-textiles. And then I learned, oh, they said things. What was it about the medium of fabrics and textiles and yarns that, that really drew you to it? At the beginning, actually, it didn't. When I first tried out, I didn't really have a good idea of what I wanted to do with them, but I just knew that it exists. Also happened to be that I took this course at the same time Hannah, who is my longtime artistic uh, collaboration partner, is also taking a course. 
And after the course, we were just chatting about making a massage interface because we wanted to get a free massage. <laughs> and then we remembered that there were such fabrics that is conductive. So we made this textile interface or like a jacket that contains this e-textile materials that is push buttons. And when you wear it, then you are pushing the buttons of the game controller. Oh, right. Of a video game. Yeah, exactly. Oh, amazing. That was our first project together. And that was one of the fun projects I did with e-textiles. That definitely does sound fun. Yeah. Yeah. And what was probably my big luck was that I met Hannah. Or I worked with Hannah in this project. And she's really good in making research on materials and making research on prototypes so not only the result or like what we have ended up using and doing with this massage me jacket project but also we had a lot of exploration and experiments with like what kind of other things you could do with these textile materials and she also got a lot of sample yarns and sample sweats and these things that we didn't use and so we got a lot of different ideas with this one project and that kind of hooked me in so now that you got hooked, how did you sort of deepen your skills? Where did you start? Because there's so many directions you can go in with textiles, isn't it? So many techniques. Where did you start and how did you build up your skills in making textiles? Yeah, well, so in the beginning, I must confess. <laughs> so in the beginning, when I started to collaborate with Hannah, she did much more of the textile works and I did much more of circuitry and programming works just because I was not really good with textiles work. And Hannah was much more skillful in sewing and doing textile things. Yeah, I didn't really have skills, I must say. But then like as we continued experimenting and then some point I started to also try out like crocheting a little bit or knitting a little bit and so on. And I watched a lot of YouTube videos, how to do things. Then you kind of come to this kind of first step point of like you could maybe crochet round shapes or knit simple scarf or something like that. So that could have been my maximum point, actually. But then I also had another luck, which was <laughs> I met Linda Warbin from Swedish School of Textiles. And she was very kind to invite me for a workshop and later on to offer a position at the Swedish School of Textiles where a lot of people knows how to do textile things. And also there was a lot of courses offered. There was a lot of equipment available for you. So being in the Swedish School of Textiles for two years as a researcher really opened up my mind and skill sets, like access to the skill sets. Yeah. And that's also where I met you. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's incredible. I, I, I didn't realize that that's where you really learned a lot of the textile skills. That's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where we met. We'll get into that at a bit later as well. Would you have any people in your life who might have been sort of your role models or mentors or someone who really inspired you and encouraged you in your work, your career? Would you share a bit about that? Wow. I find this question really difficult. And my immediate answer is no, I don't have role models. But I think I was really lucky to meet Hannah, my Kobakant colleague. And that really changed my way of thinking, my way of doing. And this whole journey of Kobakant has been a, a big ride for me. So, I mean, she's not my role model, but 
a big impact. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And, and someone who sort of, I guess you push each other in ways and grow together, isn't it? You inspire and influence and inform each other through Copacant and all the other projects that you've, you've worked together. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I think I'm really lucky to have a colleague like her because I notice a lot of times when we are doing project and just, just now we are doing another one project together. Like instead of talking to yourself, you talk to each other and that's such an impact. So for example, Indigo Hyphy was my solo project. And recently I did some project without her and I see such a big difference in process when I have someone to bounce an idea with, or I'm just doing this internally as a monologue. And of course I can talk about, if it's my own, like, you know, my solo project, I can talk with other people, with my friend about the project. And, you know, it's also bouncing back, but what is different is to have a creative partner. You are in the same stake. It's not that the other person is being a listener, but we are in this together. And that, that is a strength that I feel. Absolutely. We briefly touched upon Kobukant. Can you just explain that a little bit more for our listeners? Yeah, true. So Kobukant is an art artist collective of me and Hannah Perna Wilson. Hannah is this person that I did this massage me jacket together. How many years ago? 15 years ago. Since that project, we formed the collective and we have been working together. And of course, we had our life in between. So she went to study in the US. In the meantime, I had this opportunity to work at the Sweden. So we were not together all the time. We were not doing project all the time, all the whole year round, but we managed to collaborate at least once a year on one project on e-textiles. And since a long time, we have been a collaborators. And also as a part of the Kobakan practice, we started in 2009 documenting what we have explored or what we found in e-textiles as a database. And this practice has been going on since then with her. We slowed down a little bit the last years, but still like we are documenting our findings or small projects in this database still. Well, that database is so powerful, Mika, because anyone who's ever tried to make anything in e-textiles has used that database to find where to get materials, to learn techniques. You've been so generous, both of you, in sharing that knowledge that you have built over experiments you've made and mistakes you've made and all of that. And you've just shared it with the world. And I think everybody knows about this database and have used it. That's definitely a huge impact you've had on the e-textile industry through this. So thank you very much for that from myself and, and many, many, many other people. Well, thank you it. for a nice comment. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe can I go back a bit about talking about the how to get what you want? Yes, yes, of course. Yeah. So you mentioned about how to get what you want as a database that's maybe inspired or contributed to people who are working with e-textiles or starting to work with e-textiles. And I'm really happy to hear that. And part of our motivation to start this or keep this website or, and, and documentation was we wanted to see what other people do. So we have been doing this electronics textile things ourselves. And for that, we also learned from other people how to do this and that, like you know, how to crochet and so on and so on. And then you discover how to do some things, but then you can do only the things you can do. 
and by sharing the information, the others start to do things. So like, you know, you get more variation of it that you couldn't possibly explore. So that was like really amazing to see that people started to do things that I never thought of. But on the other hand, we in especially recent years, we are aware of the problems of producing more and making more, designing more. And then I started to also question myself for, for what I'm doing, because I do also promote this idea of making and developing new things. And then that's something I've been like kind of questioning myself of how do I understand this thing? Because it's not about stopping, I think, and it's not about I'm wanting to stop you to make something. But there's, I feel like we need to also talk about not only how to do something, but the understandings of the risks and stakes you are taking. And, and yeah, just also the understandings of the negative effect of these techniques and materials too. And then also like, you know, how one could kind of find the balance between being creative and doing interesting things, but also like, you know, how do I take responsibility in the society and in today's world about these objects that you create and materials that you use? So, yeah, so those are things that I, I've been keep thinking also with the idea that I'm open sourcing the information. It was recently I was teaching at art university in design department and I was very not shocked, surprised, I would say, and a nice surprise that I got from the students that now a lot of textile and product design students are really aware of this, this topic and questions and then almost refusing to design designing refusing to produce and this encounter with these young people really made me once again think about it of like what is my responsibility and in a way the situation we have today as this the one generation before designers so like 40 plus people's being a designers we we do have responsibility over what what it is now and then talking with the people who are becoming designers now I really wonder, okay, what is my take? What is our take for this talk? Right. Yeah, it's such an important question. Yeah, and we can think about it and we shouldn't stop thinking about it. But it's not something that you have an answer and then that's it. Or there's no answer and just feel bad and don't think about it. We have to think about it. And wrestle with it. Yeah, yeah. you're right. My next question was to talk about some of your e-textile work. That was a big part of your life, you know, over sort of 15, 20 years. Mm-hmm. Tell me a bit about that journey from where you sort of started looking at e-textiles through the first Massage Me jacket. And over the next sort of 15 years, you've done various projects and, and art installations research. And now you've come to this point, as you said earlier in the interview, like you didn't want to do an e-textile piece. What is your thinking there? Can you just walk us through that? Because we all change, we all evolve, we grow. So what could be that conversation in your head <laughs> that you had? My journey. Hmm. I guess when I started to work with e-textiles, I was quite excited about what you can do with these materials and techniques. So it was just fascinating for me to find one after another, like, oh, you can make this, you can make that type of sensors, and you can maybe apply it in this way and then you can do this kind of project. I think in the beginning, it was kind of this expansion happened and it was more the excitement. 
And then also, I mean, I started these things at 2000, yeah, 2007, really. And these were also kind of atmosphere in the in the society that you know the technology things were rather more this positive everyone was kind of excited about what more you can do with technology so i kind of like ride that wave together i think going into 2010s and so on so on and also this you know, wearable technology became a big word and like you i was also probably fed back in from these ideas of wearable technologies and what kind of the visions that they feed in. Not necessarily I was always positive about it. I also had my own critique, but overall those were kind of the atmosphere, background music of that time, probably. And then I guess at some point I started to work at the university and I also started to engage in teaching with people who are coming into the university and getting also this kind of input from young people who are also putting their on ideas in you not know, supporting the other people's project. This was kind of an interesting shift for me. So before I was more doing my own project and my focus was kind of exploration of myself. And then as I started to teach in the universities, then I started to also kind of see the process of development from outside. And then probably I also did a little bit cooled myself down from that excitement to kind of you know, observational, like you know, I'm seeing development process from outside. Then it was on and off. I also carried on doing my own project, but definitely having this experience shifted me a little bit on how I see these uh, techniques and practices. Perhaps I was never really this commercially driven person, but as I was also engaging with these discussions with students in the universities, I became more critical of how do I understand the industries and the commercialization of these techniques. And I don't want to be the person who says no, 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 no to everything <laughs> and everyone. But I think it's it's always a good to have counter-argument, isn't it? That, Absolutely. And now I feel like this counter-argument or like questioning of commercializations and this new product became much bigger voice. But I, I, I guess kind of went in more into that direction. So I was, I think in the early 2010s, there was this kind of atmosphere that, yeah, and then, you know, you should make a product or like, you know, make things that is available for the others and create the visions of what you can do with the technology. And then I didn't go into that, but I started kind of without actually making my own product, started to question about the thing, these techniques going into production, what does it mean? And do we really want it or like, you know, what is the consequence of those things and so on? So I guess I, my, my position turned more into that direction. Yeah. And now that I was doing this project without E part of it, it's not necessarily a kind of a complete negation or like, you know, I retire from E6 or something. Yeah. It was just, <laughs> it was this point that I wanted to try out doing things without electronics and a little bit changing my medium of making and see what it does to me or like, you know, where does this bring me to? And it was interesting because even though it wasn't e-textiles, at the end, I noticed a lot of ways of thinking, kind of understanding the situation and project was still open source and 
kind of documentation and all these things that I borrowed from how the scene of DIY and e-textiles people were practicing. So I was kind of bringing in this still mindset without actual product or material of electronics and e-textiles, I guess. And I love that you're continuing to use textiles, whether it's with the electronics or not. And that seems to be a medium that you go to and is, is sort of drawn to naturally now. Well, I have to disappoint you then. <laughs> oh, no, no, Mika, don't. Don't tell me. <laughs> What's your next project? The current project that I'm working on, it's a theater piece. It's an interactive theater. And we decided not to use textiles. Oh my goodness, you just disrupted my world, Mika. <laughs> really? Yeah, so we are making an wooden instrument, which is a digital technology. But this, this decision of not going for textiles were more practical reasons. Yeah, because it's a theater piece that should run for at least one year. As a regular showing, it has 60 audiences. And also, it's, it is targeted for young people's theater. So the audience are also, I mean, they're not kids, but they're young people, teenagers. And then we thought, okay, if, if you're making something only for actors, it could be textiles. But if you're making something for audience to interact with, and so many people touching, and it should run for so long time, just wear and tears of the textiles were not something we wanted to deal with. That makes sense. And therefore, we went, we went away from thinking that we make something with textiles, but rather to think of interactive object that could be robust and then still fit to the context and concept of the piece. So what we are making now is a, a violin. It's a, a digitally equipped kind of fake violin, and it does something like a guitar hero, but it's a violin hero. <laughs> Great, yeah. The piece is called Symphony. The, the setting is an orchestra rehearsal, and you as an audience sit there as a musician given this guitar hero violin so that you can play a music. Oh, wow. So everyone gets to participate in this together. Yeah. As if you're part of the orchestra, yes. even though you have no musical skills, maybe. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I love that. So you can do the floppy disk version of the violin. Oh, my goodness. I want to participate. I can't play any instrument and I've always wanted to play one. <laughs> so this is amazing. When is this performance starting and where? Premiere is on the 12th of October and it will be regularly playing. I, I don't know the schedule, but from there on, at least for one year, it will be playing at Theater Strahl at the Ostkreuz in Berlin, Germany. Wow. So if anyone else listening in is in Berlin, this is the show to go to. <laughs> <laughs> Mika, I think some of my most special memories, time with you and time with others in the e-textile community has been the legendary e-textile summer camp that you started when we were all together in, in Sweden. That was the first one that you set up and uh, then it moved to France. It's continued since, since 2012, isn't it? That was the first one. Yeah, in Sweden, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Great memories. What was your reason or thought for starting this e-textile summer camp? What were your expectations back then and how have you seen it evolve? Yeah, I remember making this proposal to Lash in the Swedish School of Textiles with an image. And this image I found on the internet somewhere, which was like after the summer camp, this messy room with a lot of drinks and then some drunk people laying. <laughs> and I sent this image with the text and saying like, 
yeah, these people who are practicing e-textile, they are in different you know, parts of the world. And we often know their works from their website or you saw it somewhere or you heard of, but you don't know each other and you just don't know in person or like you, you never meet. And of course you can, you can go to conferences, you can meet them officially. I said, yeah, but you know, this experience of summer camp, getting drunk together, eating things together and just getting to know each other, that is such a strong experience. And I want to create that with the people who practice e-textiles. So that was my proposal. And I'm surprised that he said, yes, you can do it. <laughs> Thank God he said yes, because it's been incredible. And when I was thinking about it, one of the things was, so this was this 2012, so around these times when I think people from here and there started to work with e-textiles. And I and Hannah were often asked to do workshops with e-textiles. But this was like workshop for one day, two days at different venues, mostly targeting for people to get to know about e-textiles. So it was always introduction to e-textiles. And I felt like, well, we can do e introductions and we can do introductions to each other, but I would really like to get intermediate workshops. And this was the motivation to, it was not about inviting people who are interested in e-textiles and let's start it together, but I wanted to meet the people who have been doing, who are giving the workshops and then plan a workshop that people who have been giving a workshop would give to the other people who already can also teach the workshop. So that becomes kind of intermediate workshops. And yeah, and then this kind of knowledge shares that is not addressed toward the people who are new to the things, but addressed to the people who already know about it. So it was a bit like, let's nerd about e-textiles. That was an idea. Because some people, and, and I know we kind of stopped after 2017 and that was a little bit of like I needed the pause and I wasn't sure if it's stopping but then the corona came so it kind of also there was the uh, physical reasons why we stopped and now I have been asked from a few people like are you doing it again is it continuing my thinking was a bit that I felt like then it made sense to meet in that way because there were so little people who were doing it. We wouldn't just meet someone who are do, doing e-textiles in the same town. And also it was necessary at the time to have such meetings. And also this, the people who, have, who came and who have been coming back to these meetings. But I feel like we all a little bit grew up from that or grew out from that. And I'm not sure if it's now needed to have such meetings again in, in the same format. I think it would be always nice to meet each other as a friend for fun. But if, if you think about it as an event for the purpose of it, I feel like maybe this is not the format we need now. And maybe if there is one, then maybe it's another people who needs to be in that. Yeah, it's not me maybe, but someone else who have another idea and if someone else who are in the field in a, in a different experience, maybe then this can evolve. But I feel like my chapter of that event is maybe the last page now. <laughs> you grow, isn't it? And you need something else, not the same thing. 
you said you pick up skills at a at a sort of like a floppy disk level. <laughs> What's the skill you want? One skill that you want to go really deep in? I always enjoyed weaving, and at the moment, it's still a floppy disk knowledge that I have and floppy disk skills I have. And I would really like to get deep dive into it and learn it much better than yeah. And I think. Learning is one thing, but I think a lot of weaving comes from practicing and just kind of gaining that skill set in the hand. Yeah, so that's something I would really like to do. If I remember right, when I came to visit you, you do have a loom, don't yeah, you? Like a tabletop I do. loom. Oh, actually, yeah, I'm I, so I, jealous. <laughs> I do have really good loom. I was really lucky to inherit for like, you know, my friend said, I found this loom from a school who was closing or who were throwing away the things and I don't need it so I can lend it to you. This is an arm loom with a computerized shaft so I'm really lucky to have this computerized loom but it came without the computer so it had all these mechanisms to control electrically control the shaft but it didn't have actual computer and software to control that mechanism so i built this part with arduino like i can just make a program in processing or something and control it so i have a yeah it's a bit diy but that is so you mika i mean it's a great way to sort of end the conversation that is you you just learn to put things together and make it work and make it do what you want it to do that i think sums you up beautifully yes how to get what you want <laughs> and yeah there we go <laughs> I would love to put the website details for your Indigo project how to get what you want and your own personal website if that's okay so people can just learn more about your projects yes, please. because there's so many amazing projects you've done that I think people should have a look at so I'll put all of that in the notes the last thing was I know I asked you a ton of questions but is there a, a question you wish I had asked you and I didn't is there anything you want to share <laughs> one of the things actually also I think about is programming often I do program and I do solve like I, I do develop the technology part that I need for my project myself but I always feel that one can go so much deeper into programming and also electronics in in details that I also these are my floppy disk information and knowledge and also I would really like to know more about skills of programming programming is also a craft i would say yeah, yeah absolutely yeah this is something i think about mika thank you so much for your time and for sharing so openly personally i've loved the journey that you took us on big thank you from me <laughs> <laughs> well thank you too <laughs> thank you mika okay. bye. bye i have to admit that as I recorded this conversation. I forgot that this was even an interview for the podcast. It really felt like a chat I was having with her over coffee. I enjoyed it so much and I hope you did as well. And although I've known her for over a decade, there was so much more I learned about her today. I love her floppy disk analogy of her approach to learning new skills. I believe this is a real superpower to have these days, to be nimble and, and learn new things. This requires us to get out of our comfort zones and be committed to challenging our minds and muscles to make new connections. And here, I don't mean simply dabble in new skills, but really hone in techniques and practice it and be good at it. Anyone who knows Mika can attest to the fact that she is highly skilled and much more than she gives herself credit for. 
her breadth and depth of skills across the arts, textiles, software, electronics is quite remarkable. This is an ability that I've rarely seen in others. I come away from this conversation feeling so inspired and reflective on my own skills and thinking about areas where I need to spend more time and building and refining my skills or experimenting with new ones or revisiting some practices that have become quite rusty over time. I'd like to leave you with a question today. What new skills would you like to commit to learning and practicing this year? Please do check out the links below to the Indigo Hyphy project as well. We spoke about Kobakant on the podcast that Mika and Hannah has set up. It is one of the most valuable resources that was built for the e-textiles community. I've put the link of Kobakant below and don't miss out Mika's website, which has a wide range of projects and exhibitions that she has done. It's definitely worth a look. Before we end, I'd like to remind you again about the two-minute survey. You will find the link in the show notes below. And it would mean a lot to me to hear from you, to find out who you are. Do you have a favorite episode on the No Ordinary Cloth podcast? If you do, tell me about it. Your thoughts and feedback mean the world to me as I plan for topics in 2024. Thanks again, everyone, for joining us today. This is your host, Millie Tharapin.